please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading, which is taken from Matthew chapter 4, specifically verses 1 to 11. Matthew 4 verses 1 to 11 is our scripture reading this morning, and then our sermon passage is 1 Samuel chapter 27 verse 1 through chapter 28 verse 2. 1 Samuel 27 1 through 28 2. But first, our scripture reading, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now turning to 1 Samuel Beginning, beginning reading at verse 1 and reading through chapter 28, 1 Samuel 27, verse 1 through chapter 28, verse 2. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, and therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up, went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of, of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeremelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David 
thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word as we always do. We're thankful that it is your revelation of yourself to us. That in it you reveal yourself to us more than any other person. We're thankful, dear Lord, that even though this section, this passage that we have before us as our sermon passage, that it does not explicitly mention you, O Lord, you are all over it. That you are behind it, and that you most certainly are being referenced in it. And so we pray that you would teach us from your word about you. But we pray that you would guide us as your word is now preached, that you be glorified through the hearing, through the preaching of your word, and that you would build up your people, that you would edify us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, at the end of chapter 26, David told Saul that he and his men had driven David out of the promised land, and telling David, in effect, to go and serve other gods. And in our passage this morning, we, say, we see that David did just that. Not the serving other gods part, but the part about dri- being driven out of Israel. Now, you will know, if you're familiar, as, as you probably are with the book of 1 Samuel, that David had spent the past several years, it's an indeterminate amount of time that he has spent, but at least the past several years in the wilderness of Judah, to the south of Jerusalem and to the south of his hometown of Bethlehem. But it is arguable, and that's the argument that we will be making today, that the 16 months that David and his men spent in enemy lands was his true time in the wilderness, even though it is not specifically designated as such. And this time even ends with a test for David, similar to Satan's test of Jesus at the end of his 40 days in the wilderness. Now once again, for the second time, David flees to Gath. He pleads with the king there, Achish, to to take him in. And this is the same king, you'll remember, before whom David feigned madness in chapter 21 because Achish's servants reminded Achish of uh, of the song that was sung of David. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. But David would also have been remembered in the city of Gath for being the one who struck down Goliath, probably the most famous son of that city. And so it is to this city which produced the greatest single threat to Israel that David flees for safety and refuge from Saul. I'd ask you to consider this thought as we work our way through the sermon this morning. Jesus Christ represented us in his temptations, trials, and in his death so that his righteousness is counted as the possession of all who believe in him. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ represented us in his temptations, trials, and death so that, in his, so that his righteousness is counted as the possession of all who believe in him. I recognize that's a little bit of a leap from the text that's before you. We'll get you there. Don't worry. 
I've divided the sermon into three sections today. The first, a new hero in Gath. The second, the southern campaign. And the third, the test in the wilderness. Let me run through those again. A new hero in Gath, that's the first part of the sermon. The second, the southern campaign. And the third, the test in the wilderness. So let us uh, launch into the first part, a new hero in Gath. Now, on the one hand, as we've already taken notice, Saul's constant pursuit of and seeking after David to destroy him has now driven David and his men into the protection of Israel's enemies, collectively known as the Philistines. But on the other hand, we also need to reflect on the fact that David's fleeing to Israel also comes about because he has such a strong conviction that he must not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. In order to keep peace, then, David removes himself not only from the presence, but also from the reach of Saul. And he does so by going into Philistine lands. And at the same time, he takes away the source of Saul's greatest temptation, himself. Because Saul doesn't seem to be able to handle himself when David is anywhere in theater. But 27 verse 1 quotes David talking to himself, which should be a relief to those of us who do the same. In David's case, however, it seems that he's speaking inwardly rather than with an outward voice. And he tells himself there that Saul will never stop pursuing him while he is in Israel. And that eventually he will perish at Saul's hand. And so he makes the decision to escape to the land of the Philistines. Now, this is very similar to what he actually tells Saul at the end of chapter 26. And it may be that this this. This thinking of David took place prior to the speech that he made at the end of chapter 26. But the author of, the narrator of 1 Samuel, lets us know what's going on in David's mind. And so David and his 600 men, and we'll learn later, their families went over to Achish, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,800 people. Achish was the king of Gath, and they took refuge with him there. Apparently, his previous encounter with David didn't deter Achish from taking him in this time. Perhaps his reputation as a fighter, coupled with the common knowledge of his being at odds with King Saul, at the fact that Saul was pursuing David, it made Achish warm up to David very quickly. And verse 3 says that David and all of his men and all of their households live with Achish at Gath. Verse 3 specifically mentions the fact that David's two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, were there with him at Gath. And in verse 4, we see that David's hope for outcome came about. When he found out that David had fled to Gath, Saul stopped pursuing him. Saul gave up. He saw that there was no point. And after some unspecified period of time, but long enough for Achish to be agreeable to the suggestion, David asks him in verse 5 if he might be given one of Achish's country towns so that David and his people can dwell there. And he follows it up, David does his request with this kicker. He says, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? David there is saying, I'm not worthy to be here with you. Let me take a a town on the outskirts. This request hides the fact that David wants to get away from Achish so that he can carry out covert ops on behalf of Israel by making it seem like David doesn't consider himself worthy of living in this capital city. And so in verse 6 we read, So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now this town, Ziklag, was about 20 miles south of Gath, right on the northern border of the territory of Simeon. And it was far enough away from Achish that David could have a fair amount of freedom from the king's prying eyes. 
The very person who had dispatched Gath's most famous son had now been given an entire town for himself and for his people to take as their own. And from this new base of operations, David could locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. And he does to great effect. And that leads us to the second part of the sermon, the Southern Campaign. Now so far, for someone who is reading this passage for the first time, David's actions are pretty questionable. First, as he said in chapter 26, he was going to have to leave Israel and go into pagan lands where he would serve other gods. And in the first six verses of, uh, of this chapter, a newbie to 1 Samuel might think that David had taken those words to heart. There has been no mention thus far of the Lord, and this chapter doesn't mention God at all. And now it seems that David has truly sided with Israel's enemies. It seems like he's gone over to the dark side, as it were. Verse 7 tells us that the total time that David and his men and all of their families lived in Philistia was 16 months, a year and four months. Which gives us a glimmer of hope because now we know that his time in the wilderness of exile has a terminus. It's, it's not 40 days, but neither is it 40 years. But in verse 8, we begin to see what is really going on. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. The enemy that David and his men were closing with and destroying wasn't his fellow Judahites, nor any of the northern tribes of Israel, but various peoples in Philistia. The Geshurites lived in southern Philistia, near Egypt. And the Gerzites aren't otherwise known outside of this passage. But the Amalekites are of particular interest and help us to understand the way that David executed his campaigns. The final straw, you may remember, as it were, in the Lord's rejection of Saul came in chapter 15 when Saul was fighting the Amalekites. Now already Saul has, had, authored, uh, had, had offered this unauthorized sacrifice. He grew impatient with Samuel. He didn't wait for him. But the final straw was in chapter 15. Saul was fighting the Amalekites, you remember. And he was doing so because of what Amalek did to Israel in Exodus chapter 17. Amalek attacked the Israelites shortly after the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. And after that, God promised to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And said that he would have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Saul is supposed to, as the first king of Israel, he's supposed to continue that war against the Amalekites, against all of the descendants of Amalek. These people were to be devoted to destruction, which meant that every single person, along with all of their livestock and possessions, were to be laid to waste. Devoting something to destruction, as bad as that sounds, what it means is that it is a sacrificial act in which these things are given to the Lord. Nothing is to be taken for, for, for the king or for the people. But in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, Saul held back from the Lord. He didn't kill the king, Agag, and he spared the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and lambs. All that was good, he would not utterly destroy them, as chapter 15, verse 9 puts it. The only things that Saul and his men did devote to destruction, meaning that they devoted them to the Lord, was that which was despised and worthless, as chapter 15 puts it. And so what does Paul, uh, Saul rather sacrifice unto the Lord? The things they didn't want. The things that were worthless. The things that were, that were not spotless but were blemished. 
And because of that, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Saul, it seemed, had forgotten his own people's history, and he had failed to prosecute God's judgment against God's and Saul's own enemies. But David had not forgotten. He used the gifted city's location to great advantage, going after ancient and new foes alike. He was fulfilling the commands of God that his forefathers and Saul had failed to keep. He was doing for Israel what she had refused to do for the Lord and for herself, removing their enemies from the land. And verse 9 says that David would strike the land and leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take the sheep and the oxen, the donkeys and camels, and he would take them back to Achish. Now here we have to to make this note that this was not conventional devotion to destruction warfare. But David's primary concern was not to keep the spoils of war all for himself. He was enriching his vassal king. And Achish greatly appreciated David's successes. What Achish didn't know, what, he hoped, what David hoped Achish never found out, was that the spoils of war were not coming to Achish from Judah, but instead from other Philistines. And so David would tell Achish that the raids had been against the Negeb of Judah, or the Negeb of the Jeremelites, or the Negeb of the Kenites. And we read that part of the reason that David didn't leave men or women alive was because he didn't want word to get back to Achish that it was David who had attacked them. Now, as we've already said, we know that the Amalekites were ancient enemies of Israel. And we have to assume the same about the Geshurites and the Gerzites, though we know little or nothing about them. The text gives us a hint that David, for his part, felt justified in what he was doing. That is, not utterly devoting everything to destruction, but in killing the men and the women. In verse 11, after we are given David's thoughts about why he would kill the women as well as the men, we read, such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And this word that is translated custom in the ESV and practice in other English versions is used well over 100 times in the Old Testament. It's most commonly translated as rules. In other words, keep my rules, my statutes, as it is in Deuteronomy chapter 33.10. In Moses' blessing of the tribe, to the tribe of Levi, where he says there, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. But just a few verses later in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 21, In Moses' blessing of Gad, we have a different usage of the very same word. There we read, he chose the best of the land for himself, for there a commander's portion was reserved. And he came with the heads of the people. With Israel, he, he executed the justice of the Lord and his judgments for Israel. The word that's translated there, judgments, is the same word that's translated rules a few verses earlier and custom or practice in our passage. And one commentator writes that even though translated custom or practice is the, uh, the usual meaning of the word, such as justice, judgment, cannot be suppressed. And so David's custom of leaving no one alive after his raids has undertones of justice to it. David sees what he's doing in the light of justice, in the light of judgment, that he's acting on behalf of the Lord and carrying out God's judgment Upon people. Now, the narrator may simply be giving us David's rationaliz- rationalization for what he's doing. 
And certainly David's recorded thought that he shouldn't leave anyone alive lest they bring news to Gath seems to make it seem as though David's motives were less than pure. But we have to keep in mind that David's actions aren't those of a private person here. He's a public figure. He is the uncoronated but anointed future king of Israel. And he is prosecuting war against his people's enemies. He is doing what Saul has for the most part failed to do. He is doing so, we might add, while deceiving the king of Gath. And some people have taken issue with that. They believe that it's unethical to do so. But I think we need to admit that deception and political intrigue are necessary at times by agents of the state to to maintain the security and the sovereignty of a nation. And that leads us now to the third and the final point of the sermon, the test in the wilderness. So David is doing what Saul has failed to do, what Saul largely has refused to do. In all of those years where Saul should have been pursuing Israel's enemies, and instead he was pursuing his enemy, or at least his perceived enemy, David. And we could say also that David is doing what Israel failed to do. Not perfectly, not completely, but he is being obedient to the Lord in a way that his forefathers weren't by waging war against God's enemies. In many ways, we see David foreshadowed Christ's fulfillment of the law for us. He's being obedient in a way that his king is not, in the way that his people aren't. David kept the commands that the Israelites and that Saul, Israel's first king, failed to keep. And we've got to be careful not to overstate this. But in David's feeble attempts, he pointed forward to Christ. He signified, in a sense, the Christ who was to come. What David pointed to, Jesus actually did. Jesus kept every single one of his father's commands for you and me. And his perfect law-keeping, his perfect righteousness, is imputed to me by God's grace through faith. David's experience in Philistine lands also pointed forward to Christ's temptation and testing in the wilderness. Again, we need to be quick to point out that that David's time in the wilderness was not vicarious. He was not the substitute for Israel. He didn't atone for the malcontentedness and disobedience of the Israelites for those 40 years in the wilderness. But you remember that it was Israel's refusal to go into the promised land and to fight the inhabitants there following the report of the spies that led God to deny their entry into the promised land. And that first generation of those in the Exodus They would die in the wilderness, God promised. And so David's time in the wilderness also referred back to his forefather's failure. For a year and four months, David went about his duties without any report of complaint or grumbling on his part. Now, The specific amount of time has no symbolic significance than I've been able to discern. Maybe some of you who are better better mathematicians than me can can figure out uh, what was going on there. But it was important enough, this specific amount of time, for the author to mention it in verse 7. What we can say about this time is that 16 months is a long time to be in, in exile. And we need to remember that it was an exile for David. He was driven out of his land, his future kingdom, by Saul in much the same way that Joseph and Mary and Jesus were driven to Egypt by Herod. And the fact that that David made his way to Egypt is also of significance. 
I think the significance of the amount of time David spent in exile is precisely that it doesn't align in a chronologically symbolic way with either Israel's time in Egypt or their 40 years in the desert. And so David's time in the deserts between Judah and Egypt makes reference to Israel's time in the desert wilderness, but David does not represent Israel there. Now, I can't say that I follow British royalty very closely. I've enjoyed some of the weddings, I have to say. I've enjoyed some of the pomp and circumstance. But I did find it interesting that when Prince William and Prince Harry served in the British military, what was on their name tapes? What was on their name badges, on their uniforms? Normally, the last name of a person is there. What was the last name that they bore on their name badge? Wales. Wales is not their last name. Wales, of course, referred to the fact that they were the sons of the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles, who is the crown prince of the United Kingdom. But the prince and his sons were at least in uniform as they're serving their nation. They were at least in uniform, the embodiment of Wales. And if they had conducted themselves poorly while serving, it would have been a discredit to the people of Wales, as well as to all of the UK. Now, David, at this point in his life, he isn't king. He's not even the crown prince. That's Jonathan, though he would never sit on the throne as king. David doesn't represent Israel during his time in the wilderness in the same way that he would have if he had been king at that time. But inasmuch as David's time in the wilderness is referential to Israel's wilderness wanderings, it does serve to point to Jesus Christ, the true king of Israel, and indeed true Israel himself. And David's time in the wilderness even included a test. We read at the end of chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 28 that Achish trusted David. And thinking, he thought that David had made himself an utter stench to his own people. And Achish believed David when he told him that he was making raids against Judah. And so Achish lets it be known to, to David that, that, that he and his men, that they're going in, they're, they're going against Israel. They're going to go into war against Israel. And Achish wants David right there by his side as his personal bodyguard. This is David's test. What would David do? How would he get himself out of this? Well, David buys himself time. He tells Achish in verse 2, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. That's a very ambiguous statement. And depending upon your disposition, if you trust David, like Achish is said to have trusted David, you take that very positively. You will see what your servant can do on your behalf. But it also gives David a little wiggle room, doesn't it? That he can betray Achish. He can show his true royalty, loyalty rather, to his own people. And we don't find out until chapter 29 what happens. But let's just say that just as the Lord provided a way for Abraham not to sacrifice Isaac, so he provides a way for David not to have to kill his own people. And then in chapter 29, David is able to leave Achish, to get out of the trouble that he's in. And so his time of wilderness exile ends there. Looking at Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, it was a reference to Israel's 40 years. One day for each year that the people of Israel wandered as punishment for their sins against God. 
But it was more than simply a reference. Jesus represented Israel during his 40 days in the wilderness. And I think we need to be quick to add, he represented true Israel. That is, all who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, past, present, future. And so the Old Testament saints who believed in the coming Messiah, those in Jesus' own day, those in our day, those on into the future, he represented us in the wilderness. What David did not do and could not do, Jesus did perfectly. He was the embodiment of Israel. And he passed all of the tests. He passed all of the trials, all of the temptations that Israel failed. And where David's actions were at the very best tainted with sin and at worst were heinously sinful, Jesus never sinned. He was perfectly obedient. He was the best of all possible representatives for his people. But here's the amazing part. Because he represented his people, Jesus' perfect obedience to all of his Father's commands are counted as our own. Jesus wasn't simply acting as a private person. And he wasn't acting simply in reference to Israel as if he had to atone for some of his own sins. He was acting as the representative of true Israel. Of believers like you and me. Every single person who truly believes in Jesus Christ, past, present, and future, has his, his righteousness reckoned as our own. Those who aren't represented by Christ, meaning those who refuse to believe in him as the true king, do not have Christ's righteousness counted as their own. And they will stand on their own merits before the judge of all mankind, where every sin will be laid bare. And they will be found to be wanting. The ones who commit sins will be punished. And the Lord in his word says that that punishment will be severe and eternal. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you know and trust that he is the everlasting son of God, your sin has already received his punishment. The penalty that you deserved has already been carried out on Jesus himself as he suffered on the cross. Jesus Christ hung in your place and my place on the cross. He bore the penalty that we deserved. He was exiled not only for those 40 days, but also for a time from the love of his father in that he became sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God. And brothers and sisters, that is good news. That's the best of news. And that is true for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for the patterns that you have laid out for us in Scripture. We thank you for King David, who even before he was king, behaved in such a kingly way. But we recognize, we acknowledge that he was not without sin. That he most certainly sinned against you and against his neighbor. But we thank you, Lord, that he pointed forward to Jesus Christ, who would not only truly represent all of his people, but that he would stand in our place and take upon himself the punishment that we all deserve. We thank you that David's references 
become representations in Jesus Christ, His Son. We pray that You would teach us to be grateful. We pray, dear Lord, that in the midst of trial and hardship ourselves, in the midst of of a trying time in the wilderness, that we would not be led into temptation, but that you would remind us of the goodness that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ, of your grace that you have poured out upon us, of the mercy that you've given to us. And we pray that we would indeed be grateful, that we would be a thankful people. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.